Welcome once again to Benchworld, a podcast designed to provide you with knowledge, experiences, tools, and ideas about venture capital, entrepreneurship, and finance. Interviews and conversations with top-notch global experts will take place every week, hosted by me, Hector Shibata, Director of Investments and Portfolio at AC Ventures, a global corporate venture capital fund an Associate Professor for Entrepreneurial Finance and Venture Capital. Don't forget to follow us for more content on Medium, LinkedIn and Twitter as ACB underscore BC. With no more to say, hope you enjoy this episode. So thank you everyone for being able today with us. Uh, today we have a great speaker, Daniel Frankenstein. He's a partner with Jambest. Jambest, it's an international VC fund with presence in Israel and also in New York. So Daniel, thank you very much for being our lot today. A absolutely, and Hector, thank you so much for having me. If you can let us know a little bit about your background and how do you yes. become a venture capital investor, that would be awesome. Perfect. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, as with any great opportunity in life, I actually became a venture capitalist by accident. Um, and uh, and my, my quick story is I'm originally from San Francisco, um, grew up in San Francisco, went to school uh, very close by at uh, the University of California, Berkeley. And I started my, um, my career, my business career, actually in the consulting space. Um, I went to work out of school for a company called the Corporate Executive Board. They were a New York Stock Exchange traded best practice research firm that worked with executives at Fortune 1000 companies around the world. Um, at, they actually don't exist anymore. They were bought by a, a larger company called Gartner um, about three years ago. So um, I spent five years based in their Washington, D.C. headquarters. Um, and in 2008, as the global financial crisis was starting to take hold, they were looking for revenue streams outside the United States. So the company actually sent me to Israel to open their branch office. So I moved to Israel in late 2008 um, to open the corporate executive board's Israel office. So I started working with um, mostly chief financial officers of really large Israeli companies, um, some of which you may have heard of, companies like Teva Pharmaceuticals, mm -hmm. um, companies like Bezek, their big mobile and telecom provider, um, Tanuva, Israel's big food services company, as well as the big banks in Israel, Bank Apoalim, Bank Leumi. Um, but sort of the, the key of that business was working with um, a number of publicly traded Israeli companies in the United States. So in, a little interesting fact about Israel is that Israel has the third largest number of publicly traded companies in the United States mm -hmm. for a foreign country, just behind China mm -hmm. and Canada. So there's more than 100 Israeli companies that are traded on either the New York or NASDAQ stock exchanges. Um, through that experience as a, um, you know, as being in the consulting business, um, I saw that the most exciting part of what was going on in Israel specifically was the early stage entrepreneurs, the technology being developed. Um, but I also saw that there was a big gap in the market. Um, namely that the technology being developed did not come with it great business acumen um, and great access to global markets. 
So um, I founded uh, a venture capital firm called Janvest um, to almost 10 years ago now to be what we call smart early money. Um, mm -hmm. So helping these entrepreneurs um, actually not just uh, uh, build um, you know, technology, but build a business to go along with it. So I became a venture capitalist really by accident, by seeing a market opportunity um, and to be a really value-added investor, not just writing a check to a company, but actually rolling up my sleeves myself and being involved in how the company operates and commercializes. Wow, that's a very interesting roadmap, the one that you described. So sure. what do you like the most and what do you dislike about being a VC investor? Sure. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm a people person at the end of the day. <laughs> I love people and I love stories. Um, and one of the great things about my job is I get to spend so much time with my investors who are very interesting people doing interesting things. Um, you know, you don't get to have the ability to write a check to a VC unless you've had some, some interesting pathways yourself. Um, and we're also in the business of the people that we invest in, the entrepreneurs, um, their stories, um, you know, how they came to starting a business. So I really love the people interaction that I get through, through my business. Um, you know, I would say that uh, uh, the least favorite thing I do is um, sort of the back-end administration and paperwork. Mm -hmm. For all the fun people interactions that I get to have, um, you know, last night on a Friday night, I'm filling out securities and exchange commissions registration forms, and <clears throat> I have to go get a document notarized, and I have state filings in all 50 U.S. states because we have investors mm -hmm. all over, and all, all that stuff, right, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, can, can be a little bit frustrating. People only see the front end. They don't see the back end to make it work, but having good governance with your investors, um, having um, you know, all your filings up to date with all the, um, you know, compliance organizations in the U.S. It's really important, but it's not the most fun part of the job. Okay. And for those that doesn't know, how would you describe a venture capital fund? And sure. what are the main characteristics? Sure. Um, it's a great question. So a, a venture capital fund is what's called a blind pool of capital meaning an investor puts money into the fund without knowing what's going to be in it. And they task the people who work at the fund, which are called the general partners, um, with a mandate to go out and buy into private companies. So this isn't buying a company on the stock exchange. This isn't buying stock that you can do that's sort of publicly available we actually are buying pieces of private businesses. Um, so you have to get to know those businesses. You have to um, sort of make sure that you can actually buy a piece of them. You have to believe in their story. You have to know what their market is. You have to check their technology. Um, you know, when you buy a stock on the stock exchange, there's various governance to be sure that um, the company is who they say they are, that the price of the stock is what it's supposed to be that there are certain filings and capital requirements that allow them to stay publicly listed. In the private markets, you have none of those regulations. So I, as the investor, have to make sure that the business I'm buying meets all of these requirements. Um, so uh, uh, basically, it's a pool of capital that is meant to buy into private companies 
buy private stock um, and then work to increase the value of each of those positions and either sell that stock to another investor later, sell the company through what's called an exit, um, uh, you know, to a larger organization. There's a lot of ways to monetize each of your uh, investment positions. Uh, but generally, what we do is we try to buy into an early business, help them achieve some goals, um, and then, you know, sell those assets uh, down the road. Okay, right. That's that's so interesting. So in terms of the fund, you mentioned, okay, so you first of all, you need to have the capital. So yes. what's the process in terms of raising capital for a BC fund? How do sure. you do it? Absolutely. You know, I would say every fund is a little bit different in that regard. Um, you know, when, when we got started out in this business, we had never run a fund before. Um, we had never raised money from investors. We didn't actually know how to do that. Um, so we started talking to some people who we thought might have an interest in what we were doing. And we started cobbling together some small checks from some small investors. And that's how we got started 10 years ago, was really just talking to people that we knew and having them write us a small check that we were able to aggregate into a bigger fund. Um, as we've grown as a firm, um, and as our track record has allowed us to have more conversations with much larger investors, um, there is sort of an institutional investment community um, that you can tap into. But you have to attend events. You have to, you know, do your research. There's no substitute for doing the work. And we, we, we actually tell this to our portfolio companies as well. Um, you know, we, when our portfolio companies want to raise their next round of funding, we tell them that they at least need to have 150 unique investor conversations um, to get one check. Uh, uh, we thankfully uh, have to have fewer conversations than that, but, um, but you know, we're trying to get many multiple checks. So, um, you know, I would say we've probably spoken to, we have 191 investors um, uh, uh, across the globe today. Um, I would say that we probably have had, call it 40,000 investor conversations over 10 years. Wow. Um, so, you know, raising capital is, is the toughest part to me of being a venture capitalist, um, but, you, but there's no substitute for doing the work. There's no substitute for doing the research finding the people to talk to, finding the institutions to talk to. And, but I will tell you, once you start having some success and once you start, and once your investors start seeing capital being returned to them, um, then they start introducing you around. They want other people to talk to you. Um, things do get a little bit more straightforward once you have a track record. So at the very beginning, how do you convince the investors? What are those characteristics that investors look when they commit money in a VC fund? Sure. Um, you, you know, I, I think that um, the way that an investor looks at a VC fund is they have options of where to put their money. Are they gonna put it in the stock market? Are they gonna put it into real estate? Are they gonna put it into a venture fund? Um, and, and so I think the case that a venture fund has to make is, is twofold. First, to compensate the investor for the fact that the money is illiquid and cannot be um, sold at any time, but can only be sold at a very specific time based on the uh, VC funds um, strategy, 
You have to compensate investors for that lack of liquidity through increased returns. So no one's going to invest in a venture fund for 8% a year. You can get 8% a year in real estate. You can get 6% a year in the stock market. In a VC fund, you have to convince your investors that they're going to be getting 15, 20, 25% a year by agreeing to lock their money up. Um, the other piece to the convincing uh, the, to, to, to the pitch is access. Um, you know, one of the things that we do is most, if not all of our money has been raised from U.S. investors um, who are not in Israel, who are not able to access that ecosystem. Um, and so one of the value propositions that we bring is we give you total exposure to what is going on in Israel from a technology standpoint without you ever needing to step foot in that market and do it yourself. Um, so it's greater returns than you would get elsewhere and access to a very compelling market that is one of the great innovation hubs globally. Okay, that's interesting. So you raise the capital. So let's assume that you have the capital right now. Yep. How would you operate a VC fund? What would be the next step? Yep, absolutely. So and this actually relates to your prior question as well in terms of what are investors looking for. Investors are looking to understand your strategy. And you really do need to show investors before you raise the capital what you're going to do once you have it raised. So once you have it raised, you have to decide how big is your portfolio going to be? What is your average check size going to be? So if you have and I'm just going to make up numbers here to make them very easy. But let's say you have a $50 million fund. If you have a $50 million fund, let's say you're going to make 10 $2 million investments. Okay, so you're going to make 10 $2 million investments. Boom, that's $20 million of your 50. Any fund has... 20% of it eaten up over the course of the 10-year period with administration. Fees, costs, administration. So that's 10 million as well. So suddenly your $50 million fund has 20 left. You've made 10 $2 million investments as your initial checks. You've reserved 10 million for administration and you have 20 million left. That's what's called your portfolio reserve. And that capital is meant to back your winners. That's meant to back the businesses that are showing results, that are increasing in revenue, where you believe those businesses will have the ability to generate the best returns for the entire fund. So um, you have to have a portfolio diversification strategy. How many companies are you going to invest in? What sectors are those going to be? How do those fit together? How are those complementary to each other? And then once you've made your initial investments, you have to also have a reserve strategy. Um, how much money for every dollar you invest in a company, how many dollars are you reserving for follow-on investment, as we call it? So in the example I just gave you, that's called a one-to-one -one strategy. For every $1 I invest initially, I hold $1 back to invest later. Some funds have a one-to-two strategy. For every dollar I invest to start, I save $2 for follow-on. Some funds have very little follow-on interest. Some funds have less. For every dollar I invest, I keep 50 cents behind. Um, 
So the strategy to operate a venture firm um, is, is really about thinking about what's the size of your portfolio going to be, what size check are you going to write to each of those businesses, and, and it fluctuates a little bit. So for us, for example, um, our check size is usually anywhere from one to two, two and a half million to start. We do, though, more, more um, important than our check size, though, is ownership position. Um, because your size of ownership is one of the great determinants of return. Um, so we typically need to own at least about 15, sometimes as much as 20% of a business that we buy. And the check will fluctuate typically based on that metric. Okay, wow. That's, that's a good way to store the investment thesis of any, any VC that's right. firm. So as soon as you have that investment thesis, how do you manage the investment process? How do you do the origination, diligence, the managing the portfolio and the exit? Can you please elaborate on that? A absolutely. <clears throat> so first of all, um, our view is um, being focused is very important. Um, it's, it's the key to making sure that you are a smart value-added investor. Um, if you're investing in all different kinds of companies at all different stages in all different parts of the world, it becomes very difficult to be an expert in anything. Um, we take the view that focus is one of the best assets you can bring to an investment because it allows you to be very value added to the company. And by being value added to, to these companies, you also help the return. So, um, for example, our focus is specifically business-to-business -business enterprise software solutions. So we call these deep technologies for large enterprises. So that includes cybersecurity, data analytics, artificial intelligence, machine learning, um, the digitization of legacy infrastructure. We only do software uh, uh, and SaaS products. We don't build hardware. We don't do anything in the medical field nothing with a government approval process. We stay out of highly regulated environments. We stay out of pre-regulatory environments. Um, and we don't do anything direct to consumers. You'll almost never hear of any of our portfolio companies because they are typically deep infrastructure for large enterprises. They're not consumer technologies that you would be able to use or access. Um, we also are very focused on bringing the best technology out of Israel and having that initial commercialization be with a Fortune 1000 US-based enterprise. So there's a few reasons for this. Um, first, in Israel, we know that ecosystem. We utilize technology to make sure that we see every company in our sector at all times. Um, in 2019, and I'm using just 19 numbers because it's a full year of data. Um, in 2019, we saw more than 250 uh, unique businesses that approached us. That was more, that was more businesses than were established in Israel during the same time period. Of the 250 we saw, we only made three investments. So we only do about one and a half percent of the deals that we see. So we're highly selective. We're very sector focused. We're very commercialization focused. And that allows us um, to be really, really um, hands-on with our portfolio companies because we can go back to those same commercial partners. Um, we can look at the diligence we've done in other businesses. We know these spaces very well. 
We know the challenges in the cybersecurity market. We know what to look for with those types of companies, as an example. Um, so, uh, um, you, you know, the process is, it's also, by the way, a little bit easier because we have a brand in the market. We've made 27 investments over the last 10 years. Um, people, entrepreneurs in Israel know that if you are in a deep technology at an early stage, looking for a red carpet to the US market and a value added investor, we're your first call. Um, so we have really great access to the best deal flow coming out of Israel. Um, we also get really great deal flow coming from our existing portfolio companies um, that are sending us other entrepreneurs that they're aware of, um, maybe companies that are selling products to them uh, that they think are really interesting. We also go out and find deal flow. We track entrepreneurs that we really like. Um, many times an entrepreneur will come to us, will love the entrepreneur, but really dislike what they're working on. We track that individual because typically if we didn't like it, somebody else probably doesn't either. And they'll come back to us six months later with a new plan and a new idea. Um, because at the end of the day, company names change, great people. Those are the people you are looking to invest in. So in addition to tracking businesses, we also track very specific entrepreneurs who we hope to be able to back. Um, and, and we really develop these personal relationships um, in order to do that. Wow, that's, that's very interesting. So you do all those things and how do you make the decision in order to invest in this company and not in another company? And second, what role do you take as you invest in one company? Do you have an active role? You, you are just passive investor? Yeah, it, it's a great question. So, you know, for us, three things have to be true for us to make an investment in a business. One, we have to absolutely love the team um, and think that the team has the pedigree to build their vision. Um, number two, we have to love the market that the business is looking to access um, because we want to know that there's enough of an addressable market um, to, to, to sustain the vision. And three, we have to be convinced that the team can recruit great people in the future. Um, really, it's a talent war today where companies are searching for the best people globally. Um, and great people want to work with great people. Talented people want to learn from really talented people. So we have to be convinced that the team um, can, can, can bring in the best talent and, and be able to recruit. Um, so those are really the three things we look for. We have to love the team. We have to think they have the pedigree. We have to think they can recruit. And we have to believe that the market that they're chasing is, 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 is worth it. Once we make an investment, um, we're very, very active. Um, so it almost starts before we write a check, and it includes establishing governance at these companies, protective provisions for the investors. We establish a board of directors. We establish a preferred share class. We establish protective provisions associated with that share class, and we find the balance between um, protective provisions that allow me to act as a fiduciary to my investors but also that are founder friendly, that don't make investors feel like we don't trust the team, we don't give the team the ability to run their business. 
Um, but we are very clear um, and very thoughtful about the governance in a business. It's one of the great, it's one of the ways that international companies have a challenge when they come to the US market is they lack the governance that American investors, acquirers, and customers are looking for. And it's one of our key value adds as a firm is helping these companies establish that at the very beginning. Um, the other thing that we do uh, sort of in the process of investing is we help the company create an employee stock option pool. So when someone goes to work for a startup, they typically go to work for a startup, not because of the salary, but because they're going to get some stock options in the business. Um, but you have to have a mechanism to provide those options. You have to have a 409A um, legal opinion in the United States to price those options. There's so many pieces that we do every day that our portfolio companies are doing this for the first time. So we bring our experience to structure the back end of these businesses right at the beginning um, so that they don't have to worry about it and they can actually go out and start running the business. Now on the front end piece, the first six months of an investment is a very busy time for us. We are working with companies to get that first customer. We're using that first customer to define what we call product market fit. Is what you're building fitting a need in the market? And based on the customer who's using this, can we define the scale that this could have at other potential customers? Um, we are helping think about the revenue model. Is this something you sell for $10 a month? Is this something you sell for $100,000 a month? Is this something you sell on an annual subscription or is this something that you sell on a monthly subscription? Uh, there's so many decisions that, that come up in the first six months. What's our strategy around intellectual property? Um, which patents are we gonna file? Which ones are we gonna decide to wait for later? Um, when are we gonna hire our first salesperson? Um, you know, for example, one of the things we tell our portfolio companies is we say, do not hire a salesperson right away. The founders need to be the folks who do the first sale because they need to hear the feedback from the market. They need to hear what businesses, how they're reacting to the product. And once you get those first few customers, then you hire a salesperson because you know what you're looking for. You know what you're selling. You know what the revenue model is going to be. You've chosen a vertical. So are you selling to banks? Are you selling to insurance companies? Are you selling to consumer products companies? Are you selling into the retail industry? Um, what we always say to our companies is uh, be careful what you want because you'll get it. So you have to know what you want. And the best way to know what you want is by doing some of these first things yourself um, to be able to really define and, and understand what your market looks like. Okay, great. That, that's very, very interesting. You pointed out about corporate governance in the startups. How yes. relevant is having corporate governance in any VC fund? And if so, well, how, how do you establish it? So we'll be at the, the fund level that. or with the portfolio companies? At the fund level. I'm a big believer that good governance is of chief importance and a great way to make sure that your investors have full confidence in what you're doing. Um, you know, to me, governance is, is one of the most important things. And if you want to talk to serious, large institutional investors, they will demand good corporate governance. So for us, 
Um, that involves having a US-based fund council. They establish the legal entities of our funds. They make sure those tie to our bank accounts for those funds. We have a fund administrator that makes sure all of our filings are done the right way, that we um, have you know, proper SEC registration. We benefit from the right exemptions from the SEC. Um, and, and by the way, we make all of our governance and all of our rules available to our investors. So the agreements that we have, the legal agreements that we have, the um, compliance designation that we're given by the SEC, these are all things that we make available to our investors at any time. So they know exactly who's running the business. They know what our, um, they know how much money we've raised. They know exactly how much we've deployed. They get quarterly financials from us. Um, we, we, we believe that the best way to uh, have the confidence of your investors in a fund that typically lasts four to 10 years before people actually see any cash return, the best way to make sure that those investors remain faithful to the fund is by knowing exactly what's going on and knowing all the governance that underpins our decisions. So we have very specific rules around conflicts of interest. Um, for example, I'll give you a great example. We as partners in the fund cannot under any circumstances work at or be compensated by any of our portfolio companies. That might seem a little weird given how active we are, right? Because we sit on the boards of these companies, but I am not allowed as a board member at one of our portfolio companies, I, I tell my investors, I will not take any compensation out of the portfolio company. Now, the reason for that is I need to be able to make good decisions at the fund level. If I'm getting paid by the portfolio company, I suddenly become more loyal to the portfolio company. And maybe I invest more in that business because I'm getting paid by that business. Big no-no. One of the worst things you can do. That's called a breach of fiduciary duty to the fund. So we have all, and that's just one example. We have all these rules and we make sure our investors know these rules and we make sure that our investors know that we're constantly following these rules. So to me, governance is one of the most important things that you can have as a VC fund. It's one of the best ways to increase the trust investors have in you. It's also one of the ways to erode trust if you don't have it. Okay, great, thank you. So let's speak about the economics of a VC fund. How would you sure. describe the economics of any typical VC fund? So the typical VC fund is structured, it's called a two and 20. Um, two and 20 means a 2% management fee. That's an annual fee that the investors pay and 20% of the profit. So let's go back to our fictional $50 million fund. So a $50 million fund charges the investors 2% a year um, as sort of administration costs. So a million dollars a year goes to the management company to pay the staff that is managing the VC fund. If the management of the VC fund turns 50 million into 100 million, the first 50 of that 100 goes back to the investors as a return of capital. And the 50 million profit is subject to the 20% profit share. Um, so that would be $10 million going to the VC management as a payment for 
um, for their work. So that's the profit. So you'd send 40 million back to the investors and 10 million would go to the VC fund. Um, so so the, the typical economics of a venture fund is you, have, you charge a management fee to keep the lights on, to pay the staff that's working on the investment team. Um, those fees also go to cover things like your office space and whatever technology you're using, travel, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then the fund itself also pays its own costs. So the fund gets audited every year. The fund has to have accounting. The fund pays an administrator. So, um, the, the, but the typical VC fund is called a two and 20, uh, 2% fees annually, um, and then a 20% upside pay uh, if the fund performs very well. Okay, no, thank you. What would you say are the key mistakes that VC investors make as they establish a VC fund? Uh, what, what would you say? I would say there's, there's, there's two big mistakes. Um, number one, a big mistake is when um, VCs try to be everything to everyone. Um, you know, VCs have a lot of investors. Those investors have opinions. Those investors have ideas of what the fund should be investing in. Um, and again, when you're trying to be everything to everyone, you're nothing to anyone. Um, and it's really important to have your strategy and to make sure that your investors buy into the strategy. Otherwise, you have all these different influencers um, that make it really hard to run the business. So that's one mistake that VCs make is trying to do everything that, um, uh, uh, you know, that they, uh, you know, that their investors, you know, everyone's pulling them in different directions. Um, I would say the, the, the second is, is, is also related, which is some VC funds will give away um, a good amount of their performance upside, that 20%, to a big investor who invests early on in the fund's life cycle. So you basically have a silent partner who's benefiting from a lot of your work, which I think disincentivizes the management from actually um, spending all of their time on, on, on the endeavor. Um, and so I think that, that this all comes down to one mistake, which is you have to have really thoughtful, clear relationships with your investors so that those relationships can't create conflicts of interest or create what we call mission creep, um, as in you don't know what exactly you're doing, you're not focused because you're being pulled in all these different directions or you have a complex ownership structure of upside interest. There's just a lot of weird arrangements out there that a lot of VCs put together because, you know, as I mentioned earlier, raising money is really hard. Um, having capital to invest is really hard. And a lot of VCs are willing to, to make that easier on themselves by actually hurting their own economics later on down the road. It's one of the reasons and one of the things why we're very proud to say to every one of our investors, everyone pays the same, everyone pays the full fee. We don't have influence on strategy from our investors. We don't have influence economically from our investors. Um, our investors are betting on us to make them money. And, and, and there's nothing distracting us and there's no noise from that end. And I think ultimately that actually does make the investor more money. 
Okay, no, thank you. And what do you have any final recommendations for the people that would like to become VC investors or for those entrepreneurs that are dealing with VCs? Yeah, a a absolutely. Um, well, uh, certainly um, there are a lot of VC funds out there. And so if you're looking to make a VC fund investment, ask a lot of questions, um, know everything about the strategy, know everything about the track record, do reference calls, talk to other investors. Um, there's no shortage of diligence resources out there. If you're ever going to make a, a VC investment, um, uh, absolutely do your work um, because there's a lot of funds out there and only a, the top few, um, uh, only sort of 10 to 12% perform really well. Most VC funds don't perform very well. So, you know, pick and choose carefully. Um, if you want to go work at a VC, my biggest recommendation would be go work somewhere else first. Um, and the reason for that is that um, I believe I'm a better investor today because I spent eight years with large corporations working with them to solve their biggest challenges as a consultant. Um, I bring that experience. I bring the understanding of how large organizations buy, um, buy software. I bring experience understanding the procurement process of a large company. Um, I bring the experience of knowing how large companies view IP um, and the importance of that. So I am able to give better advice to my portfolio companies because of the work and, and what I learned elsewhere. So if you want to go work at a VC, you will be actually more valuable and be on a quicker track to be a partner if you go do something else first. Um, and when it comes to um, uh, if you are an entrepreneur approaching a VC fund, um, you know, I would say, first of all, you have to talk to everyone. As I told you at the beginning, um, we tell our portfolio companies have at least 150 unique conversations. Um, and the one advice I would give you to approach a VC is be targeted and be thoughtful. Um, all VCs have on their website where they invest, the stage they invest in, and the sectors of focus. So look at that before you send an email to that VC. It takes an extra five minutes, but it is well worth your time. Because I will tell you, anybody who sends me an email out of the blue, I have no idea who they are, and they say, Daniel, I see that you invest in big data companies that are early stage coming out of Israel. That's exactly what I am. I want to be in the U.S. market. I'd like to have a conversation with you. Absolutely. As a partner in the fund, I will talk to you having never met you because you showed me that you do your research, you're thoughtful, and, and, and you took the time to use my time wisely. And I really appreciate that. Um, but I will tell you, I get four or five emails a day from entrepreneurs that have clearly not looked at our website. They bought a list somewhere and they just blasted out the same note to everybody. And they're a late stage business located in New York that's doing something in consumer technology. Nothing I would ever look at, but they don't care about my time. And the way I look at that is that's how they'll treat their customers. Um, and that's not a good leading indicator. So my biggest advice is be well-researched and be thoughtful, but be thorough. You have to talk to everybody. Um, so that would, be, that would be my advice. Great. 
Thank you so much, Daniel Frankenstein from Jambes for being today with us. It's a pleasure having you. Thank you so much for having me. And, and by the way, uh, you know, I, I would just say, you know, follow Janvest on LinkedIn. Um, connect with me on LinkedIn. Feel free to send me an email, daniel at janvest.com. I'm happy to be a resource for anybody on the call. Um, if anybody would like me to look at a pitch deck, um, you know, I just think that uh, um, having people that you can bounce ideas off of is really important. Follow us, stay updated with us, and uh, I really appreciate the chance to have this conversation today. Hector, thank you for having me. No, thank you, Daniel. So let me see if there's a couple of questions from the panel. So Mike Alfonso, 